Hey, it's Reading Aloud. My name is Nate Cordry. Sam Kiefer is with me. Hi, guys. As always. Uh, happy 4th of July weekend. Uh, I feel like I have to do the Declaration of Independence again. Uh, Robert Baker came in last year and read it so compellingly. It has to be replayed because tis the season. Do you remember when Baker laid that down, Sam? I do. That was a great read. It was fantastic. He's a great actor and a good buddy. He also is a multiple... I think he's been in like three, two or th- at least, I think three book clubs, um, most recently for Geek Love. Uh, great guy. And so that's going to be coming up very soon in the episode. Uh, but before then, a uh, little reminder, in two weeks is the book club. Have you picked up the book yet, Sam? Uh, I just did the other day. Uh, Emma pumped. Klein's, what's that? I'm pumped. I'm pumped too. Emma Klein's The Girls Getting Countless positive reviews. Uh, so pick it up. It's like a, about a Manson-esque Southern California cult um, and the young women that get wrapped up in it. Emma Klein's The Girls. You have plenty of time to pick it up. It's a really fun summer read. Check it out. Um, and there's, there's no interview today, so we're getting right into uh, stories and readings, like the heart of reading aloud. So no interviews, just sort of the, the nuts and bolts of hey, man, what the show... This? Um, I, just oh, wanna... I know you're introing or whatever, but like, I want to get to it. Like, I got, I got places to be. I got like meetings. I got meetings and shit. So, like... uh, Nate, I'm sorry, he just barged in. Okay, well, I was going to put you off. And, no, you invited me. I didn't barge no, in. No, I, I just did. came into the room. Don't call it what it isn't. Hold on. Well, I you... came into the room, okay, you're and ten... I'm ready to go. You're 10 minutes early, but we can get to you now. That's fine. Oh, I... now you're going to be on me because I'm early? What if I was 13 minutes late, asshole? Okay, well, I Seems guess— Seems like we're... I'm being respectful. Hold on a second. Let's just get to—well, well, I'm glad you're here, so we'll just go into your reading if you'd like. I'm glad you're here. Yeah, I, I will. I'm going to start, I'm going to take a breath, and then I'm going to go. Not because you asked me or told me it was time, but because I'm going to do it, okay? I'm oh. going to take a breath, and then I'm going to go. Okay, our guest is here. He's going to do his story, and I'm really glad that he's here. I'm, I'm sorry to upset you. I'm Comic Sans, asshole. This is by my boy Mike Locker. Listen up. I know the shit you've been saying behind my back. You think I'm stupid. You think I'm immature. You think I'm a malformed, pathetic excuse for a fun. Well, think again, nerd hole, because I'm Comic Sans, and I'm the best fucking thing to happen to typography since Johannes fucking Gutenberg. You don't like that your coworker used me on that note about stealing her yogurt from the break room fridge? You don't like that I'm all over your sister-in-law's blog? You don't like that I'm on the sign for that new Thai place? You think I'm pedestrian and tacky? Well, guess the fuck what, Picasso? We don't all have 73 weights of stick-up-my-ass Helvetica sitting on our 17-inch MacBook Pros. Sorry the entire world can't all be done in stark, Euro-trash Swiss type. Sorry some people like to have a little fun. Sorry I'm standing in the way of your minimalist Bauhaus-esque fascist snooze-fest. Maybe sometime you should take off your black turtleneck, stop compulsively adjusting your Tumblr theme, and lighten the fuck up for once. People love me. Why? Because I'm fun. I'm the life of the party. I bring levity to any situation. Need to soften the blow of a harsh message about restroom etiquette? Slam! There I am. Need to spice up directions to your graduation party? Wham! There again. Need to convey your fun-loving, approachable nature on your business's website? Smack like daffodils in motherfucking spring. When people need to kick back, have fun, and party, 
I will be there, unlike your pathetic fonts. While Gotham is at the science fair, I'm banging the prom queen behind the wood shop. While Avner is practicing the clarinet, I'm shredding rain and blood on my double-neck Stratocaster. While Universe is refilling his allergy prescriptions, I'm racing my tricked-out, nitrous-laden Honda Civic against Tokyo gangsters who will kill me if I don't cross the finish line first. I am a sans-serif Superman, and my only kryptonite is pretentious buzzkills like you. It doesn't even matter what you think. You know why, Jagoff? Because I'm famous. I am on every major operating system since Microsoft fucking Bob. I'm in your signs. I'm in your browsers. I'm in your instant messengers. I'm not just a font. I am a force of motherfucking nature. And I will not rest until every uptight armchair typographer cock hat like you is surrounded by my lovable, comic book-inspired, sans-serif badassery. Enough of this bullshit. I'm going to go get hammered with papyrus. All right, thank, thank now, you. fuck you. I'm out. You're right. Bye, nerd. Okay. Okay. That was the first time the podcast was hijacked by a font. Is he gone? It, uh, yeah, he stormed out. Do you know where he is now? I saw him ham through the parking lot. Okay. I'm gone. just glad he didn't burst into any other studios or anything. Uh, he's probably just running up Sunset Boulevard right now. Uh, thanks for coming in, Comic Sans. Um, this next piece, it's Act 2, and this is a hilarious piece, again, found on McSweeney's, McSweeney's.net, uh, written by Katie Shore. It's called I Saw Hamilton, So Now I'm Going to Orphan My Son. <laughs> you can find uh, Katie on uh, Twitter at uh, Kate R. Shore, S-C-H-O-R-R. Really funny writer, really clever. And this piece is hilarious. And Robin Clark came in and read it for me. Um, it's wonderfully done. And I'm so glad that uh, Robin came in and read something. Robin's been in the book club a couple times, but she's never read anything. This is her first time. So, and she just kicked ass. So, without further ado, here is Robin Clark reading Katie Shore's Hamilton piece from McSweeney's. Here it is. I saw Hamilton, so now I'm going to orphan my son by Katie Shore. I saw Hamilton on Broadway because I'm, sort of, young, scrappy, and hungry, and also very white, privileged, and on trend. And boy, did it inspire me. First of all, I immediately purchased Ron Chernow's biography of Hamilton, which I haven't started reading yet, but might at some point. Then I memorized the lyrics to Satisfied, devoting an entire workday to it. My patience be damned. And most notably, in a year or so, my husband and I plan to orphan our 11-year-old son. I know that sounds extreme, but I've listened to the album almost 500 times, and it is very clear that Hamilton became the man he was because nothing was handed to him. I need to stop handing things to my son. And I'm going to start by, as Eliza says, erasing myself from the narrative. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, but what if your son becomes an Aaron Burr? He was an orphan too. Yeah, that's a concern. What's more of a concern, though, is my son's unnerving chillness and his utter lack of incentive to prove himself to anyone. And he doesn't even smoke pot yet. He's a nice kid, eats his stupid vegetables, isn't outspoken about anything, not even the unfortunate family name we stuck between his first and last, Poon, 
and prefers meandering around the backyard gathering bruised oranges to teaching himself French or reading philosophy translated from the Greek. So yeah, I think I'll take the risk that my son might become an Aaron Burr. Besides, have you seen Leslie Odom Jr.'s portrayal of history's most misunderstood man? Look, if my son becomes a well-regarded lawyer who can also sing and rap and dance with that kind of passion, who the hell am I to complain? I actually encouraged him to duel it out with Rahiv, his arch-nemesis from next door, just to get it out of his system, but he said he didn't want anyone to get hurt. Hun, I said, most disputes die and no one shoots. He asked, are you quoting Hamilton? Yeah, I said. He shook his head. Fine. Will you be my second? But I'm the doctor, I said. Because I am. He asked if Rahiv could be his second. Have you ever heard of someone so in need of orphaning? <laughs> Since the duel fail, I've been playing The World Was Wide Enough on repeat during his carpool defensing practice. I think it's working, and he understands that it's no big deal how much funnier Rahiv's pay puns are than his fart jokes, because they can each carve out lives of import across the country from one another, and will, in fact, once we orphan my son and he goes to live with my sister in Wyoming. That being said, I am not content to see him take the opportunities we give him and squander them by cheating on his wife with a victim of the patriarchy like Alexander did with Mariah. I mean... I get it. Who could resist a person with that kind of vocal quality and eloquent phrasing? My God, the woman can sing. But I am certain that if my son hears Jefferson, uh, no slouch but no orphan, chanting, never gonna be president now enough times, and recalls that terrifying way he flung all those papers in Hamilton's face, he will, for the love of God, get out of the city and go upstate to his wife's goddamn lake. Or better yet, don't even have a wife. You see, watching Hamilton did more than prompt me to spend most of my waking hours doing Google image searches of Philip Hamilton, hot, or skimming Wikipedia entries about how the Schuyler sisters' dad owned slaves in upstate New York, what, and that John Lawrence and Hamilton might have been in love, yes. The show is an object lesson in why you can't just orphan your child and expect them to acquire all the grit and wherewithal they need to not ruin their chance at the presidency, or, you know, whatever career they choose. You need to make sure before you go that nothing's going to get in their way. The reason we're waiting a year to do this whole orphaning thing is not only to replicate the exact age at which Hamilton was on his own, 12, thereby ensuring he is mature enough to handle the crushing blow of our absence, but also emotionally devastated enough for it to affect, change, and drive him forevermore, but also to make sure his brother is in college. That way, he'll never sacrifice his happiness for Trevor's like Angelica did for Eliza. That way, he can stop being the helpless little idiot I created and become the kind of man Alexander Hamilton was, and more. That way, I can stop worrying that his mediocrity is my fault. That way, he can be president. And that way, I can afford to see Hamilton at least one more time from the fucking orchestra. This episode of Reading Aloud is brought to you by Loot Crate. Loot Crate is a monthly subscription box service for epic geek and gamer items and pop culture gear. For less than 20 bucks a month, you get four to eight items that include licensed gear, apparel, collectibles, unique one-of-a-kind items, and more. So make sure to head to lootcrate.com slash Nate, enter code Nate, to save three bucks on any new subscription. 
I have my new Loot Crate box right in front of me. It is uh, the dystopian future-themed box. I got a badass RoboCop tee that is actually very soft, Cody. Do you see how soft wow. this T-shirt is? If you wanted to get this damp, you could probably like, wash your body with it. That is cotton. Isn't That's that delightful? Yeah. Robo, a very clever RoboCop tee that I plan to wear. A really cool Dorbs doll from Fallout. I don't know that game, but if you like Fallout, you're going to want to have this in your home. A Matrix puzzle. A T2 thing. A cool map. This pin. And a Bioshock thing. And one other thing that I don't know what it is because I, I don't play video games. However... I like cool t-shirts, I like cool dolls, and I like cool puzzles. Loot Crate brings that all to your house. They guarantee 40 bucks every month, and every month is a different theme. They've done franchise themes like Star Wars and Marvel, The Walking Dead, etc. This month is futuristic. So it's packed with futuristic stuff. Rick and Morty, Futurama, Star Trek, Mega Man, Valiant Comics, Star Trek, it's all there, including a model, a figure... And don't forget the monthly tea and pin. You only have until the 19th at 9 p.m. Pacific to subscribe. So make sure you go to lootcrate.com, enter code Nate, and save three bucks on a new subscription today. That was Robin Clark reading Katie Shore's piece from McSweeney's I Saw Hamilton. So now I'm going to orphan my son. Uh, it's so fucking funny. Well done. Thank you. Thank you to both. Thank you to Robin and thank you to Katie. Uh, transitioning to a, uh, to a dramatic piece now. This is like old school reading aloud. No interview, just badass uh, pieces being read. Um, this is a great piece from a book that I just finished reading a couple weeks ago that I loved. I don't read a lot of crime novels. Uh, I read, uh, the whites for the book club, but that was like a year ago. Um, and he's great Richard Price, but I don't, I don't read a lot of noir. I don't read a lot of, um, crime. And this is a, just a great piece of, um, of crime fiction. It's called the friends of Eddie Coyle. And it's written by George V Higgins. Um, I, I think I'm also drawn to it because it's a Boston thing. Uh, he grew up in Brockton and, and he taught at, Boston College, and he wrote for the Boston Globe and the Boston Herald and the Wall Street Journal. Um, he was a professor at Stanford as well. But um, he, uh, he wrote this amazing uh, series of crime novels, and The Friends of Eddie Coyle was his very first. He wrote it in 1970. And it's just so minimalist and bleak and dark and punk rock and very heavy on sparse, you know, urban dialogue. Um, just a bunch, it's about a bunch of sort of no good thuggish guys who are running guns and about the cops that are trying to chase them down. It was made into a movie, um, and which is great, but it's very sparse and very sort of um, quiet. It's a lot of uh, dirt bags talking in rooms. But this is, a, this is a chapter from the book in the middle of it where uh, there is a kidnap. Uh, kidnapping happening and it's described so brilliantly so this is this i'd love this book so i'm gonna read it myself this is me reading this chapter from uh the friends of eddie coyle written by george v higgins here is my voice 
Samuel T. Partridge, having heard his wife and children descend the stairs, their bathrobes swishing on the Oriental runner, the little girls discussing nursery school, their son murmuring about breakfast, showered lazily and shaved. He dressed himself and went downstairs for eggs and coffee. In the family room beyond the kitchen, he saw his children standing close together next to the Boston rocker. His wife sat in the Boston rocker. All of their faces were blank. Three men sat on the couch. They wore blue nylon windbreakers over their upper bodies and nylon stockings pulled down over their faces. Each of them held a revolver in his hand. Daddy, daddy, his son said. Mr. Partridge, the man nearest him said. His features were frighteningly distorted by the nylon. You are the first vice president of the first agricultural and commercial bank and trust company. We are going to the bank, you and I and my friend here. My other friend will stay here with your wife and children to make sure nothing happens to him. Nothing will happen to him, and nothing will happen to you if you do what I tell you. If you don't, at least one of you will be shot. Understand? Sam Partridge swallowed both his rage and the sudden gout of phlegm that rose in his throat. I understand, he said. Get your coat the first man said. Sam Partridge kissed his wife on the forehead. He kissed each of his children. He said, don't be afraid. Everything will be all right. Do what mommy tells you. It'll be all right. Tears ran down his wife's cheeks. Now, now, he said. They don't want to hurt us. It's money they want. She started in his arms. He's right, the first man said. We don't get any kicks at all from hurting people. It's the money. Nobody does anything silly. Nobody gets hurt. Let's go to the bank, Mr. Partridge. In the driveway behind the house, there was a nondescript blue Ford sedan. Two men sat in the front seat. Each of them wore a nylon stocking over his head and a blue windbreaker. Sam Partridge got into the back seat. The men from the house sat on each side of him. The driver said, You sleep late, Mr. Partridge. We've been waiting a long time. Sorry to inconvenience you, Sam Partridge said. The man who talked in the house took charge of the conversation. I know how you feel, he said. I understand you're a brave man. Don't try to prove it. The man you're talking to has killed at least two people that I know about. I don't say what I've done. Just keep calm and be sensible. It isn't your money. It's all insured. We want the money. We don't want to hurt anybody. We will, but we don't want to. Are you going to be reasonable? Sam Partridge said nothing. I'm going to gamble that you're going to be reasonable, the spokesman said. He took a blue silk kerchief from his jacket pocket and handed it to Sam Partridge. I want you to fold this and put it over your eyes for a blindfold. I'll tie it for you. Then sit down on the floor of the car here. The Ford began to move as Sam Partridge squirmed down between the seats. Don't try to see anything the spokesman said. We have to take these stockings off until we get to the bank. When we get there, you just be patient until we get dressed up again. We'll go in the back door the way you always do. You and I will stay together. Don't be concerned about my friends. Just tell your people not to unlock the front door and not to pull the curtains. We will wait until the time lock opens. My friends will take care of the vault. We will come back to this cab when we're finished. You will explain to your people that they are not to call the police. 
You will tell them why they are not going to call the police. I know it's uncomfortable, but you will ride back to your house the same way you are now. We will get my friend at your house. When we get a safe distance away, we will let you go. Right now, we don't plan to hit you on the head, but we will if you make us. Otherwise, we don't plan to hurt you or anybody else unless somebody fucks up. What you said was right. We want the money. Understood? Sam Partridge said nothing. You make life hard for me, the man said. Since I have the pistol, that is not a good idea. Do you understand? I understand, Sam Partridge said. In the bank, Mrs. Greenham sobbed quietly as Sam Partridge explained the situation. Tell them about the alarm, the spokesman said. In a few minutes, Sam said, this time lock on the vault will open. These men will take what they came for. I will then leave with them. We will return to my house. There is another man at my house with my family. We will pick him up and leave. This man has told me that my family won't be hurt and that I will not be hurt if no one interferes with them. They will release me when they are satisfied that they had gotten away. I have no choice but to believe that they will do what they say. So I ask you, all of you, not to set off the alarms. Tell them to sit down on the floor, the spokesman said. Please sit down on the floor, Sam said. Mrs. Greenham and the others sat awkwardly. Go over to the vault, the spokesman said. Next to the door to the vault, Sam Partridge had his field of vision contracted to include only two objects. There was a small clock set into the steel door of the vault. It stood at 45 minutes past eight. There was no second hand. The minute hand did not appear to be moving. Eighteen inches away from the clock, down two feet from its eye-level location, there was the black-gloved hand of the spokesman. It held very steadily a heavy revolver. Sam saw that there was some kind of a rib on the barrel and that the handle was molded out to cover the top of the hand that held it. He saw touches of gold inside the black metal of the cylinders. The hammer of the revolver was drawn back to full cock. The minute hand did not seem to have moved. What time does it open? The spokesman said quietly. 8.48, Sam said absently. In July, they had taken the children to New Hampshire and rented a cottage on a pallet-shaped pond north of Centerville. They had rented a boat one morning, an aluminum rowboat with a small motor, and he had taken the children fishing while his wife slept. Around 11, they had come in because his son wanted to go to the bathroom. They beached the rowboat, and the children ran up the gravel slope to the tall grass and through the tall grass and the sunshine to the cabin. Sam had removed a string of four pickerel from the boat and placed it on the gravel. He had bent back to lift out the rods and the tackle box and the thermos of milk and the sweaters. He straightened up with the articles and turned toward where he had placed the fish. On the loose gravel of the shore, perhaps a foot from the stringer of fish, a thick brown timber rattler was coiled. Its head was perhaps a foot off the ground. The rattles of its tail lay drooped against one of its fat coils. It had been swimming. Its smooth, textured body was wet, and it glistened in the sun. The patterns of brown and black repeated themselves regularly along the skin. The eyes of the snake were glossy and dark. Its delicate black tongue flickered out, without a discernible opening of its jaws. 
The skin beneath the jaws was creamy. The sun had fallen comfortably warm upon the thick snake and upon Sam, who was repeatedly chilled, and he and the snake had remained motionless, except for the snake's black, delicate tongue, which flickered in and out from time to time, for several lifetimes. Sam had begun to feel faint. The position in which he had frozen almost erect, with the children's articles and the tackle in his hands, made his muscles ache. The snake appeared relaxed. It made no sound. Sam could think of nothing but his uncertainty. He did not know whether rattlers struck without rattling. Again and again he reminded himself that it made no difference, that the snake could easily satisfy any such ritual quickly enough to hit him before he could get away. Again and again the question nagged at him. Now look, he had said at last to the snake. You can add the goddamn fish, you hear me? You can have them. The snake had remained in the same position for a time. Then, its coils had begun to straighten. Sam had decided to try to jump if it came toward him. He knew that it could swim faster than he in the water, and he had no weapon. The snake completely controlled the situation. The snake turned slowly on the gravel, its weight rubbing the pebbles against each other. It proceeded up the slope, diagonally away from the cabin. In a while, it was gone, and Sam, his body aching, rested the articles on the seats of the boat and began to tremble. The spokesman said, What time does it say now? Sam swung his eyes back from the black revolver to the clock. It doesn't seem to move, he said. 8.47, I think. It really isn't much good for telling time. All it does is show the mechanism is working, really. When he had told his wife about the snake, she had wanted to leave at once and give up the four days remaining on the cabin rental. And he had said, We've been here, what, nine days? That snake's been here all his life. And he's big enough, so it's been a long time. There's probably a snake somewhere else in New England, too. The children haven't gotten bitten so far. There's no reason to think he's going to get more aggressive between now and Saturday. We can't spend our lives in Ireland just because the kids might get bitten by a snake sometime. They had stayed. But they had noticed themselves picking their way through the long grass and watching carefully where they stepped in the gravel. And when they were in the water, Sam was constantly watching for the small head and the thick, shiny coils in the blue pond. Do you want to try it now? The spokesman said. Or does it set off the alarm if you try it before the set time? No, Sam said. It just doesn't open, but there's a click when it hits the set time. There isn't any use in trying it until you hear that click. There was a dry snap inside the door of the safe. There it is, Sam said. He began to turn the wheel. The spokesman said, When you get it open, move over towards the desk there so I can watch you and the rest of them at the same time. Sam stood near his own desk, staring at the pictures of his family pictures he had taken. There was a Zenith desk set with two pens and an AM-FM radio in the front center area. His wife had given it to him for company when he had to work late. Yesterday's Wall Street Journal lay folded on the near corner of the desk. Mrs. Greenham collected the mail each morning and brought him the journal before sorting the rest of it. Her routine had been interrupted. She would be helpless all day. In the morning, regular customers would be calling to inquire about their deposits and withdrawals because the tickets and checks would not arrive when expected. 
No, that was not correct. There would be something in the papers about this. Something on television. The other two men converged from the positions they had taken up on the bank. Each of them produced a bright green plastic bag from under his coat and shook it out. They went into the vault. They did not speak. The black revolver remained steady. The other two men emerged from the vault. They placed the green plastic bags on the floor. One of them produced another bag and shook it out. He went back into the vault. The second man drew his gun and nodded. The spokesman said, When he come out, you remind your people about the alarm. Tell them there's going to be some shooting, but no one's going to get hurt. I'm going to have to take out those cameras you got there. Why do you bother? Sam said. Those are for people who cash bad checks that you don't ordinarily notice in the course of business. Everybody in here has been staring at you guys for the past 10 minutes. They can't identify you. Why take the chance? There's a drugstore next door, and he's open by now. If you think this place is soundproof, it isn't. You start shooting, and they'll bring somebody for sure. Helpful, aren't you? The spokesman said. I don't want to get hurt, and I don't want anybody else to get hurt, Sam said. You said you'd use that thing. I believe you. Those cameras haven't seen anything I haven't seen. Just a bunch of frightened people and three men with stockings over their faces. You got to kill all of us, too. All right, the spokesman said. The third man came out of the vault, the third bag partly full. Tell them this. My friends are going to go out and get in the car. Then we're going to go out and get in the car and go back to your house. Your people to open the bank and say absolutely nothing to nobody for at least an hour. If they do that, maybe you won't get killed. Will you listen to me, please? Sam said. We're going to leave now. As soon as the door shuts in the back, get up and take your usual places. Open the doors and pull the curtains. Start to do business as usual as best as you can. It's very important that these men have at least an hour to get away. I know it'll be difficult for you. Do the best you can. And if anyone comes in wanting a large amount of cash, you'll have to tell them there's something wrong with the vault and we'll call a repairman to open it. To the spokesman, he said, will you have one of your friends there close the vault? The spokesman pointed toward the vault door. The second man swung it shut. The spokesman nodded, and the two men picked up the plastic bags and disappeared into the corridor, leading to the back door. Please remember what I've said, Sam said. Everything depends on you to see that no one gets hurt. Please do your very best. In the car, there was no sign of the plastic bags. Then Sam noticed that one of the men was missing. He sat in the back seat with the spokesman. The driver started the engine. Now, Mr. Partridge, the spokesman said, I'm going to ask you to put this blindfold on again and get down on the floor of the car. Me and my friend in the front air are going to take off the stockings. When we get to your house, I will help you out of the car. You take the blindfold off so nobody gets frightened. We'll pick up my other friend and come back out to the car. You'll put the blindfold on again, and everything goes all right. In a little while, you'll be safe and sound. Understand? In the family room, his wife and children seemed to occupy the same places they had had when he first came downstairs. His wife sat in the rocker, and the children stood close together next to her. He knew without being told that they had not spoken since he left. The fourth man rose from the couch as they entered. Sam said, I've got to go away with these men for a little while now, and then everything will be all right, okay? The children did not answer. To his wife, he said, you better call the school and tell them we've all got the bug and the children will be absent. Don't say anything else, the spokesman said. 
I'm just trying to do what you told me, Sam said. The school calls if you don't. Fine, the spokesman said. Just make sure it isn't the state police or something. Now let's go. Outside, Sam was blindfolded again. His eyes hurt from the sudden change from sunlight to darkness. He was led to the car. He was pushed down on the floor. He heard the car go into gear, the transmission under his head clinking as the car backed up. He felt it lurch forward. He was able to tell as it turned out of the driveway and turned left. When it came to a stop and turned right, he knew it was on Route 47. The car proceeded for a long time without stopping. Sam searched his memory for the number of stoplights or signs that they would have passed. He could not remember. He was unable to say any longer where they were. There was no conversation in the car. Once he heard a match being struck and soon after smelled the cigarette burning. He thought, we must be getting somewhere. It must be almost over. There was a crunching sound under the car and it slowed down quickly. The spokesman said, I'm going to open the door now. Put your hands on the seat and pull yourself sitting up. I'll take your arm and get you out of the car. We're at the edge of a field. When you get out, I'll point you and you start walking. You'll hear me get back in the car. The window will be down. I'll be pointing the gun at you every minute. You just start walking and you walk as far as you can. Sometime while you're walking, you'll hear the car move off the shoulder here. I promise you. We'll stay packed in the pavement for a while. You won't be able to tell by listening whether we're still here or not. Count to 100, then take your mask off and hope to God we're gone. Sam was cramped and stiff from lying on the floor. He stood unsteadily on the shoulder of the road. The spokesman took his arm and led him into the field. He could tell he was standing in wet, long grass. Start walking, Mr. Partridge, the spokesman said. And thanks for your cooperation. Sam heard the car move off the gravel. He shuffled along in the darkness, the unevenness of the field frightening him. He was afraid of stepping into a hole. He was afraid of stepping on a snake. He got up to 34 and lost count. He counted again to 50. He was unable to breathe. No longer, he thought. No longer. I can't wait any longer. He removed the blindfold, expecting to be shot. He was alone in a broad, level pasture bordered by oaks and maples that had lost their leaves and stood black in the warm November morning. For a moment, he stood blinking, then turned and looked at the empty road scarcely 20 yards away. He began to run stiffly toward the road. Hey, it's reading aloud. We're in the middle of a really fun episode. There is no interview today, just fun, compelling readings by great friends and myself. I'm a friend of myself. We get along most of the time. Uh, we're transitioning to the uh, the wonderful reading by Robert Baker of the Declaration of Independence. He did this last year for last year's 4th of July episode, and he just killed it. And he's a good pal, and I wanted to include it again because, you know, tis the season. Um, so here it is. This is... Uh, this was written by the Founding Fathers in the 18th century. Uh, it was about independence and stuff. Here it comes, Robert Baker reading the Declaration of Independence. Here it is. In Congress, July 4th, 1776. 
The Unanimous Declaration of the Thirteen United States of America. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence, indeed, will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes, and accordingly, all experience hath shown that mankind are more deposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right. It is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies, and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. The history of the present king of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. He has refused his assent to laws, the most wholesome and necessary for the public good. He has forbidden his governors to pass laws of immediate and pressing importance unless suspended in their operation till his assent should be obtained, and when so suspended, he has utterly neglected to attend to them. He has refused to pass other laws for the accommodation of large districts of people unless those people would relinquish the right of representation in the legislature, a right inestimable to them and formidable to tyrants only. He has called together legislative bodies at places unusual, uncomfortable, and distant from the depository of their public records for the sole purpose of fatiguing them into compliance with his measures. He has dissolved representative houses repeatedly for opposing with manly firmness his invasions on the rights of the people. He has refused for a long time, after such dissolutions, to cause others to be elected, whereby the legislative powers, incapable of annihilation, have returned to the people at large for their exercise, the state remaining in the meantime exposed to all the dangers of invasion from without and convulsions within. He has endeavored to prevent the population of these states for that purpose obstructing the laws of naturalization of foreigners, refusing to pass others to encourage their migrations hither and raising the conditions of new appropriations of lands. He has obstructed the administration of justice by refusing his assent to laws for establishing judiciary powers. He has made judges dependent on his will alone for the tenure of their offices and the amount and payment of their salaries. 
He has erected a multitude of new offices and sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people and eat out their substance. He has kept among us in times of peace, standing armies without the consent of our legislatures. He has effected to render the military independent of and superior to the civil power. He has combined with others to subject us to a jurisdiction foreign to our Constitution and unacknowledged by our laws, giving his assent to their acts of pretended legislation, for quartering large bodies of armed troops among us, for protecting them by a mock trial from punishment for any murders which they should commit on the inhabitants of these states." for cutting off our trade with all parts of the world, for imposing taxes on us without our consent, for depriving us in many cases of the benefits of trial by jury, for transporting us beyond seas to be tried for pretended offenses, for abolishing the free system of English laws in a neighboring province, establishing therein an arbitrary government and enlarging its boundaries so as to render it at once an example and fit instrument for introducing the same absolute rule into these colonies, for taking away our charters, abolishing our most valuable laws and altering fundamentally the forms of our governments, for suspending our own legislatures and declaring themselves invested with power to legislate for us in all cases whatsoever, he has abdicated government here by declaring us out of his protection and waging war against us. He has plundered our seas, ravaged our coasts, burnt our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people. He is at this time transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries to complete the works of death, desolation, and tyranny already begun with circumstances of cruelty and perfidy scarcely paralleled in the most barbarous of ages and totally unworthy the head of a civilized nation. He has constrained our fellow citizens taken captive on the high seas to bear arms against their country, to become the executioners of their friends and brethren, or to fall themselves by their hands. He has excited domestic insurrections among us and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers, the merciless Indian savages, whose known rule of warfare is his undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. A prince whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. Truth. Nor have we been wanting in attentions to our British brethren. We have warned them from time to time of attempts by their legislature to extend an unwarrantable jurisdiction over us. We have reminded them of the circumstances of our immigration and settlement here. We have appealed to their native justice and magnanimity, and we have conjured them by the ties of our common kindred to disavow these usurpations, which would inevitably interrupt our connections and correspondence. They, too, have been deaf to the voice of justice and of consanguinity. We, therefore, acquiesce in the necessity which denounces our separation and hold them as we hold the rest of mankind. Enemies in war, in peace, friends. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America and General Congress assembled, 
appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions due in the name and by authority of the good people of these colonies solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states. That they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved and that is free and independent states they have full power to levy war conclude peace contract alliances establish commerce and to do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do yes and for the support of this declaration with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence we mutually pledge to each other our lives our fortunes and our sacred honor Declaration of Independence, tis the season. Thank you, Robert Baker. Anyone pick up on the uh, kind of weird, like, Brexit tendencies that were also in there, right? Country trying to leave another country, be independent, different circumstances, of course, but still some vague similarities. Anyway, thank you, Baker, for reading the Declaration of Independence for us. Uh, Big thanks to Mike Locker and to Tim Simons. Mike Locker wrote the piece, I'm Comic Sans, asshole. Tim Simons played Comic Sans today, brilliantly. Mike Locker is a really talented writer. Uh, you can find his stuff on Mike Locker, L-A-C-H-E-R.com. Uh, and also on Twitter. He's on Twitter as well. And big thanks to Katie Shore for writing this brilliant Hamilton piece. And big thanks to Robin Clark for coming in and reading it. You can find Katie Shore on Twitter at Kate R-S-C-H-O-R-R. And Robin Clark is at Red Red Robin. Find them. Follow them. Get into it. Uh, and thanks to myself for reading the piece, <laughs> Friends of Eddie Coyle. Good job, Nate. Um, book Club, two weeks. Emma Klein's The Girls. Go pick it up, read it. You can call us, 702-751-READ. Leave us a voicemail about what you thought about the book. Or send us an email at readingaloudpodcast at gmail.com. As always, I'm Nate Cordry. This is Sam Kiefer. You've been listening to Reading Aloud. Have a wonderful 4th of July holiday. I love you, Nate. And I love you, Tim. What is your name? Tim is fine. And I love you, Tam. Oh, you hit me like a hurricane. Hey, thanks again to Loot Crate, the monthly subscription box for geeks, gamers, and pop culture nerds. I have my box right next to me, and it's chock full of goodies. This month, again, they're celebrating futuristic. So the crate is packed with cool, futuristic stuff. Rick and Morty, Futurama, Star Trek, uh, Mega Man, Valiant Comics. Did I say Star Trek? Star Trek. It includes a model, a figure, And don't forget the monthly tea and pin. You only have until the 19th at 9 p.m. Pacific to subscribe, so go quickly and get this month's crate. If you want to save three bucks, enter code Nate. Lootcrate.com slash Nate, enter code Nate, and save some Chinola. On Run and Bevel, we love to ask our guests difficult questions. 
Can I ask you a question about the N-word? Sure. Offensive? Were you the cutest baby that's ever been born? I know you were. Pat Jewish? First of all, yeah, are you? I am not. Not at all? Have you done your DNA with Ancestry.com? Yeah, I haven't done the DNA. Why haven't you done that? Is it derogatory to call you a Kiwi? Your face is like a baby face. If Kid and Play had a baby together, that would be you. Do you mind if I make a quick phone call? Uh, okay. That's so cute. Did you get a note? Sure. What about your great-grandparents? Were they slave owners? (laughs) They must have been. (laughs) Oh, your poor mother. Listen to Rana and Beverly today on Earwolf.com, Howl, or your favorite podcast app. This has been an Earwolf production. Executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Adam Sachs, and Chris Bannon. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf.